And let me ask you to turn to the 38th chapter of Genesis to continue our series in the life of Joseph. And yet we don't come to Joseph. Not this morning. Genesis 38, we'll read beginning in verse 1, and we'll go to verse 30. We'll read the whole of the chapter. Let's hear the word of God and the word of Moses. We're told that it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law, is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and set at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me? that you may come into me. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things that's her own or we should be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. 
And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, look, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand. His name was called Zerah. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God endures forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless the, the reading, the preaching, the believing and the loving of his word. Almighty God, we come to a sordid story of sin and sadness, shame. We ask you to show us our own, but don't leave us in the pit, Lord. Don't leave us in the slimy side of life. Deliver us, O Lord, from our own sin. And give us grace, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. One uh, infamous commentator on this story says, as his kind of concluding remark in his commentary, entirely unsuitable for preaching. In the next half hour, you'll be able to tell me if that's the case or not. Uh, I, I don't believe it is. I aim to show you he's wrong, but uh, it's a little challenge for us this morning. Uh, in fact, I would argue that this chapter actually preaches to us in the middle of horrific sin the grace of God. It's not entirely unsuitable. It's actually entirely suitable, maybe not for a kid's book, but for our real lives, our adult lives, our lives that are real, whether we're kids or whether we are uh, mature. And this shows us Jesus Christ. It shows us there's a, there's a savior even for Judah. This is a sleazy story. It is, uh, took liberties and used a word skeevy. I don't know if you all know the word skeevy. I looked it up. Apparently, it comes in the 70s from South Philly, an Italian word, I think. Uh, so you may use it, you may not use it. Uh, I'll just use it from time to time this morning. That's okay. This is a skeevy text. It's a sleazy text. It's a yucky text. It's a mucky text. And yet, it's actually uh, given to us by the Holy Spirit. We, we, we believe that this is a profitable text for us. So how does that profit us? Let me first kind of point to you why it's here. Last week, we had the great story, the story of Joseph, the amazing dream coat. We had the story of Joseph, and that was a great start to an amazing story. Why are we not continuing with it? Why is this chapter here? Why does God deliberately put a break in between Joseph and Joseph? I mean, if we write a story, we, we usually kind of write one whole story. This dirty story is here. Why is it here? I think there are several reasons. I have five. I'll give you a few. I'll see how many I want to give you. First, this is exciting. This is excitement. God puts this chapter in here to introduce tension. It's a cliffhanger. We left with Joseph being sold into slavery. What's going to happen to him? You got you to gotta read on. You got to wait. There's a little bit of a cliffhanger here. The second, this is meant to show you a contrast between Judah and Joseph. We'll see that Judah, when faced with temptation gives in pretty dramatically his sin is in marked contrast to what we'll see next time joseph 
As quick as Judah sins, Joseph remains pure and integrity. He has integrity. Third, this is a passage that's meant to show you why God has to quarantine. I don't mean to use that word. Actually, I do mean to use that word. God has to quarantine his people from Canaanites because something happens when they get around the Canaanites. We'll see it, of course, as we get into the text. Fourth, we see here actually that this chapter is a way to show us that Jesus Christ does not turn away from skeevy, sleazy people. But he comes, in fact, from the line of Judah himself. We'll get to that in due time. The history of this is a dirty history, but it's a history that shows the grace more clearly. Despite Judah's sin, God still shines more brightly. In fact, like a diamond against a dark background, this chapter shows us the brilliance of God's grace in the middle of a mucky mess. Let's get to the mess, though. Those are maybe, I guess, five reasons why. Let's get to the mess. We see first here, a daughter failed. If you have your outline, that's where we'll start with. We'll have a daughter failed really in, in three major ways. A daughter failed by Judah. Judah, we see here, fails in verse 1. It happened at that time. Let's look there. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. What does Judah do first? He fails as a son of the covenant. He steps forward as the fourth son of Jacob. The first three have failed. Reuben failed. Simeon failed. Levi failed. Now it's Judah's turn. Will Judah be the promised heir? Will he be the one to, to, to redeem? No, he won't. What tragic decline we see. He starts here in verse 1. He separates himself from Christians. That's the first step. He left his brothers. He leaves his family. One day eventually leads to another. And what, what happens? He lives entirely with people who don't care about God. This is the picture that the New Testament shows us in a place like Jude 19. People who are not motivated by the Spirit of God. That's Judah's first mistake. His second mistake here is to choose a terrible best friend. He chooses a guy named Hira. In fact, we'll see he uses Hira later on when he has to send him to, uh, to find, uh, find Tamar. Judah does not just separate himself from Christians, but when he separates himself from Christians, what does he do? He becomes best friends with somebody who doesn't share his core, his heart. His heart should be about Jesus. Hira's heart's not about Jesus. This guy doesn't care about Christ. Now, look, let me just be clear. There's nothing wrong with having common interests with your neighbors. There's nothing wrong, in one sense, with having even friends who are not Christians. There's nothing wrong with certainly getting to know your neighbors. That's part of life on earth. But the real question, probably for those who are younger, who's your best friend? It's not necessarily a question of who's your friend, but who's your best friend? Who do you entrust yourself to? Who's your best friend? Who's the person you share the core of your soul and heart with? If they don't love Jesus, it's like you're walking next to a nuclear reactor. You're getting radiation into your very soul. You're getting polluted every time. How can you walk together? You can't. A man is known, we're told in the Proverbs, by the company he keeps. would be wise in the selection of our close friends. It's what David says in Psalm 119, remove me from evildoers. 
And so what happens to Judah third? This is verse two. So first step, leave your brothers. Second step, make best friends with non-Christians. Third step, verse two, he becomes like the pagans. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, went into her. She conceived and bore a son. He called his name Er. Verse 4, again she conceives. Verse 5, again she conceives. What do we have here? The man who leaves the covenant community, the man who leaves the church, the man who prefers the company of folks who don't trust in Christ, eventually he takes a woman from the Canaanites. The language here, by the way, the way the author talks about their marriage is entirely almost exactly the same as what we saw back in that other dirty chapter, 34. Remember Shechem? Shechem saw and took. There's one difference, though. Shechem was not a Christian. He, wasn't a, he was a pagan. Judah is a son of the covenant, but he's operating entirely like a Canaanite. It makes sense. He's best friends with one. That's just what you do. I mean, Judah's a man's man. You see, you take, you just grab. And, and who has this girl become to Judah? She is simply an object to him. Get me sons. All we know about her, she makes babies. That's it. We don't know about her righteousness. We don't know about anything but of that. For Judah, he just takes her. He goes to see her. That's it. It's an entirely physical relationship. Now, he knew better. Judah knew better because he had the family story. He had the family story told to him. What did great-granddad do? What did Abraham do? Abraham made his servant swear, don't marry one of the people of the land. Go far, far away. Go on a huge journey. The same thing with, with, with Rebecca. She said, Jacob, don't go to the people of the land. Go marry somebody else. But Judah goes right ahead. He breaks his vow with God. And, of course, compare that to his brother's. Simeon and Levi, for all their issues, they had been so furious that one of the Canaanites took their sister that they wiped out the whole town. Yet Judah doesn't even care. He's nonchalant. He marries outside the faith. He marries outside the covenant. He's motivated purely by what he sees. And one of warnings is to all of us, whether you've been married for decades or not, don't be drawn away by merely physical attraction. Yes, you should think your spouse is attractive. Check. But we're not to plan on missionary dating. We're not to plan on missionary dating. You don't marry somebody you can mold or transform. You don't even uh, continue in marriage, uh, leaving hope that maybe someday they'll change to be the kind of person who uh, doesn't use your toothbrush. Right? The kind of person who likes your flavor of ice cream. No, you, you don't marry because you, you don't hope marry. You don't marry hoping that they'll become different. You don't stay in marriage hoping that they'll become different, right? You don't marry an imaginary individual. You marry in the Lord. And Judah fails every single test here. He has every benefit of the covenant, but he runs from everything as a son of the covenant. Moreover, he's a failure to, to this, <clears throat> this woman, Tamar. He's a failure as a father and a father-in-law. Look at what happens to his sons. Verse 6. Enter Tamar. Judah takes a wife for Ur is firstborn. Her name was Tamar. What happens to Ur? We're told he was wicked in the Lord's sight and the Lord put him to death. What did he do? I don't know. Don't ask me. Something bad. He was wicked. That's all we know about him. And God responded. God, it was so bad that God killed him on the spot. Second, 
you know, but maybe one son isn't maybe a, a you know, a, a bad sign for Judah. Maybe just Judah kind of failed of that one son. Second son. Verse eight. Judah said to Onan, do something weird. Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, Onan is asked to fulfill a responsibility that seems strange to us. It's a responsibility that was very popular back in those days. It was called leveret marriage, the Latin word levere, meaning brother-in-law. Because, of course, back in those days, kids mattered. Kids mattered a lot more for families uh, even than now because they were the main way you could pass on your land. They're the main way you could pass on your name. And for Israel, for the nation of Israel, they're the way you keep land in your family. And land was money. That's the way you keep your, your stocks in the family, if you will. And moreover, in this case, if you didn't have a kid, if you weren't able to pass on your line, it meant for these 12 guys, sons of Jacob, that the line of Christ would not come from them. And so Judah uses this kind of popular concept. He says, look, if the brother, if the husband dies, the brother-in-law of the husband was supposed to marry the widow so she could bury children, not for him, but for the dead husband to carry on the name and the line of the dead husband. There was no there's no welfare, additionally. There was no social security back in those days. Instead, you find that this is a picture both of a safety net for the widow and in Deuteronomy 25, we find that it's actually a picture of spiritual redemption of barren families. So what does Onan do? Well, it's interesting because he, uh, he does get into a relationship with her. But we read in verse 9, he knew that the offspring would not be his. And so he deliberately uh, engages in coitus interruptus and does what is wicked to avoid giving offspring to his brother. What does he want? He's greedy. What's his sin? He's greedy. He wants the money. He wants the land for his kids and not for his brother, his dead brother's kids. He's glad to get the privileges, the benefits of marriage. He doesn't want the responsibilities of allowing Tamar to conceive. He is perverting a solemn duty. He's being materialistic. He's manipulating this young gal. And Tamar, by the way, would have been probably in her late teens at this point in time. So what happens to God? What happens to Onan? Excuse me, verse 10. God kills him. God kills him. Two down. Now we begin to see a pattern here with Judah. It appears that Judah has failed as a dad. He, we have no indication that he has instructed his kids in anything related to the Lord except for this one weird cultural custom about leveret marriage. That's the only thing we know he's, he talked about. We don't hear anything of him telling them of the promise given to Jacob or Abraham or Isaac. We don't ever see him praying with his sons. In fact, he excuses them. Verse 11, he says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go stay with your dad. Go stay in your dad's house till my third son grows up. For he feared that he would die. He said, Tamar, you're bad juju. You're bad luck. Something's bad about you. See, Judah does not blame his sons. He accuses them. You know parents who excuse their kids. Oh, my kids are perfect. How could my kid get that grade? That's impossible. You must be the problem. How can my kid do anything wrong? Your kids must have been bullied. My kid would never bully anybody. You know this. This happens. This is a danger. 
Judah says, you're to blame, Tamar. And now he has the responsibility to send his third son to her. And they did the second one. But he says to Tamar, you wait. And of course, we find that Tamar realizes eventually when uh, uh, the third son grows up, when Shelah grows up, he never goes to Tamar. Judah never wants to send him at all. He marginalizes Tamar. And so he's a failure as a father-in-law. But moreover, Judah really fails Tamar, not just by that, but by the skeezy part of this story, the sleazy part of the story. He fails as a widower. We read that uh, his, his wife, verse 12, his wife dies. Tamar realizes, nobody's coming for me. I'm not going to have kids. There's no line that can be passed on. Judah's not going to come for me at all. And what does she do? She enacts a plan. It's a fascinating plan. She finds out, verse, verse uh, 13, he is going up for sheep shearing time. Now, you don't know what sheep shearing time is. I've not been to a sheep shearing party, but apparently in those days, sheep shearing was like the rage. It was the holiday time. Sheep shearing was the party time. When they sheared the sheep, it was an extravaganza. That's when you would have all the, festival, all the festivals. And it was common also in those days in Canaanite religion that you would do what a lot of folks do today. They would combine uh, spirituality and sex. They would combine uh, money and sex and power and God, and they would put it all into one big mush. And so you would have these, these, uh, these ladies of the night around the Canaanite temples, and it was expected you, would, you could use them, if you will. Um, in a really perverted sense. And so what does Tamar do? She finds out, oh, it's party time. He's going to have money in his pocket. He's going to be excited. Here's my plan. Verse 14. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up, and said at the entrance to a city. She dresses up as a lady of the night. Now, what's fascinating here, just to make a point about this plan, is that we don't read that Tamar took a long time to think up this plan. We don't read that Tamar was like, oh, this is a long shot. I don't know if this will work. No, she did the plan. She had it in mind. It was the first thing that came to her mind when she learned that Judah was going to sheep shearing time. What does that tell us? That tells us she had a pretty good insight. This was probably going to work. What does that tell us? She knew that Judah was the kind of guy who would do this sort of thing. She knew that Judah was the kind of man who liked to indulge himself in this way. That's the only way, that's the only way, only, only way this could work. And so Judah falls into her trap. He becomes entirely like the world. He propositions her. Verse 15. Verse 16. He says, let me come into you. Verse 17, she says, I, I need money from you. This is a transaction. He says, I will send you a young goat. She says, okay, but before you send me a goat, I need uh, some surety here. And so he, uh, verse 18, he hands over his credit cards, like all of them. He hands over his driver's license, his ID. Well, that's what we would call it. They would call it, of course, a signet. Uh, not a signet ring like we have later in the Bible, but likely a, a round cylinder with markings that would indicate whose it was. Uh, staff, 
the staff had a metal tip on it, likely, again, indicating, hey, this is uh, like you have monograms. I had monogram pillows. Judah has a monogram staff, in a sense, that marks out his identification. Um, and so what happens? Well, Tamar wants to deposit. Judah gives her a sign that he won't leave and not pay up. And so what happens? Judah's a skeevy guy. He commits a sketchy sin. Doesn't this show us, just as one side note, how desperately you and I need to pray what Christ tells us to pray? Daily, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil, whether we're young, not like Judah, but like his son. They're old like Judah. We come under the threat of slimy sin. Slimy, muggy sin. So we're told here to keep your eyes on heaven and not the pleasure of this age. And then what happens? We have this last kind of failure of Tamar. Beginning in verse 20, Judah's trying to find this, this, this prostitute gal. They can't find her. He's been duped. And Judah says, okay, well, just, just uh, let her keep my, 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 my uh, credit cards. Yeah, maybe he'll cancel them. You know, Maybe he'll call up the credit card company and have them canceled. He'll, he'll get a new one sent out. I don't know. But um, eventually, verse 24, about three months later, he's told, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. She's pregnant by that immorality. Now listen to what Judah says here. This is perhaps his lowest point. He gives a judgment. You know, as, the, as a patriarch, as the head of the family, he could do this in those days. And the Hebrew is actually harsher than even our English. Verse 24, Judah said, bring her and burn her. Literally, two words in the Hebrew. Bring and burn. Bring her, burn her. Harsh, cold, clinical, maximum punishment, immediate. There is no, uh, what's the evidence? There's no questioning. There's no sympathy. There's no empathy. There's no care. Instead, he asks for the harshest possible penalty, death. He is irresponsible. He is heartless. And don't forget the fact that Judah's line is still barren. Judah's line still does not have a firstborn son, a child through his firstborn son. He's still barren. It's a sign that Judah himself is a little bit cursed. And moreover, we come then to this dramatic scene. How will there be hope? I mean, out of all this skeevy, disgusting, yucky things that we skip in our kids' story Bibles, where's their hope? Well, the answer is that God provides a remedy. He provides actually multiple remedies. We look first, the remedy here of the grace shown in Tamar. The grace of Tamar. Who's Tamar? Tamar came from the pagans. She is a Canaanite. She came from the darkness. And in the, in the Bible stories, most of the time, it's the Canaanite women who pull down the Israelite men. But Tamar is the reverse. By God's kindness, her husband, her brother-in-law, her father-in-law, they all treated her horribly. She would have every right to look at the religion of God in the church and say, if this is what Christians are like, I'm bailing. I'm out of here. I'm done. This is an awful religion, but the Holy Spirit works in her. And Tamar, in fact, becomes like Ruth. She says, I will identify with them. She shines in the history of redemption as a loyal and faithful member 
of the covenant people. And we see that here in this dramatic moment. Let me just read verse 25. She's being brought out to be burned, to be killed. She's being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, you can just, it's dripping here with drama. Please identify who these are, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Isn't it a, it's a beautiful picture of courage, of determination. It's also an ironic picture of deception. You recall, what had Judah done in the last chapter? He had been the guy who said, let's take Joseph and sell him for money. He's a greedy man. Let's take him and sell him for money. And then we'll take the, the coat back to our dad and we'll say, dad, Verse 32, Genesis 37, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. You see, Jacob had duped, uh, Judah had duped Jacob. And now what happens? The very next chapter, ironically, in a fit of poetic justice, Jacob, uh, Judah is himself duped by Tamar, by the man to whom these belong. Please identify who these are. Identify them. Now, you have to notice that Judah could have said, I don't know who they are. And maybe his neighbors would have known, and he would have had some gossip, and people would have been a little bit mean to him, and they would have thought worse of him. But he was a he, he was a, he was the guy there in the situation. He could have said, I don't know who they are. Killer, burner, sentence. You see what Tamar does here? She hazards her life. She risks her life. For generations to come, through the young pagan woman, God fulfills his promise. Do you see how beautiful the grace of God is just with Tamar? It's the way a young, a young teenager named Mary would work. Like Tamar, thought of as suspect. Her relations were suspect, but precisely the one to carry out God's designs. Isn't this an encouragement for you in your life today? That God uses skeevy people like us to fulfill his glorious plan. Tamar humbles him herself to produce benefits for the whole church, for the whole world even. And yet, like Christ, she humbles herself. Like our Savior. The amazing thing about Tamar is, though she had every reason to reject the promise of God, she does not give up. She is the courageous one. She is the determined one. And yet, there's another sign of God's remedy here. It's actually Judah himself. He is caught. He is trapped. She has his credit card. She has his staff. And this is really the question of the story. What will Judah do? Let's look and see what he does. Verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. I did not know her again. He says, it's me. I'm the one. He says, Tamar is more righteous than I am. But that's not the way we should hear it. Let me, let me do a little bit of work here. He's not saying I'm 30% righteous and good and she's 70% righteous and good or at least 35%. No, in fact, the Hebrew here can be read as she is righteous. I'm not righteous. That the contrast. I am guilty. She is vindicated. I am condemned. She is pure. Isn't this how we are supposed to really confess our sin as Christians? He doesn't turn to Tamar and say, yeah, those are mine, but you. 
Isn't that how we, we often want to do things? Yeah, yeah, I did a little bit, but you. Whenever you hear somebody say, but you, it's often not a good sign in these situations. He could have said, but you dressed up. You wore those clothes. You're really the one to blame. You entrapped me. He's a man's man. I mean, to do this in Kenneth society, to do what he did was normal, natural. That's what you do when you're among the macho guys. But Judah owns his sin. He doesn't, he doesn't engage in rationalization. He doesn't uh, uh, defend himself by attacking others. He, he doesn't uh, use what about is and what about her. And we have, the Bible tells us that he did not know her again. He forsook his inappropriate, skeevy, sketchy relationship. And he is, he is transformed. We'll see actually in the, in the chapters to come that he is transformed. He, he is transformed here. From a man's man into God's man. A man's man to God's man. So Tamar, part of the remedy. Judah, part of the remedy. The remedy of repentance. Finally, there's this third angle of grace. We see that his line of barrenness is broken eventually. And we see here, verse 27. When the time of her labor came, Tamar's labor, there were twins in the womb. Not just one kid. God gives a double blessing, an amazing grace. Two sons, not one, are born. And then we see that in the story of the sons, that there's even a reversal of what we expect, our ideas of priority. We expect the first one to be the first one. In fact, what happens is that this, this kid, Zara puts his arm out. Verse 28, the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying this one came out first. You know, it's kind of like putting a little stamp and say, oh, this, was the, this is the first one. And yet, what actually happens? Perez comes out, the other kid. The other twin comes out first, the unexpected one. God, as he so often does, chooses the younger one to have priority, the unexpected son. He chooses Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over his brothers, and now Perez over Zerah. Perez is the one whom God chooses to send Jesus Christ. Perez means the one who breaks through. He, he breaks through. And isn't that the picture of our Savior? Isn't that what Christ does? Christ breaks through heaven into earth. He breaks through as God's son. He breaks through to override our failures. He breaks through, not in the palace of Caesar, but in the manger of Bethlehem. He breaks through in lowliness and he breaks through your hard heart. He breaks through our hard hearts. He breaks through in his spirit. So the greater Perez breaks through. He comes into our skeevy and slimy and sketchy souls. He breaks through sin and death and sorrow so that nobody can say, nobody can ever say. You cannot read this story and say the Bible is all about pie in the sky, silly Pollyanna, magical fairyland. This is about real life. You cannot get more real than this. Very hard to. Christ does. Christ comes far enough down, no matter how skeevy you feel you are today. Christ can come there. Christ has been there. He has broken through. And one day he will break through again the clouds in glory to come and judge living and the dead. He is the breaker. He is our captain. Even as we've seen in the book of Hebrews, he is the champion who breaks the lines that we may follow him. So what are we to learn from this story? I think three things, three uh, lessons we can point out here. First, we've already mentioned here. You are called as a Christian to love God's amazing grace. That's why we're going to sing it, by the way, in a couple of minutes. You're called to love God's amazing grace in the most sordid squalor. Sin does not triumph. 
Sin does not have the last word. God's grace has the last word. Tamar, with her courage, unwittingly becomes a member of the line of Christ. Judah, the man's man, is transformed into a man after God's own heart, who weeps like David after Nathan exposes his shame. Through sinful Judah and determined Tamar, the Savior will be born. Jesus Christ has pagan blood in his veins. That's what we see in Matthew 1, isn't it? You probably know there are four women mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. One of them is Tamar. Her name is honored. Do you not see here the greatness of God's grace? Are you denying its power? I guess one of the questions we want to ask ourselves is this. Am I, where am I denying God's power to transform? Where am I denying the reach of God's grace in my life? If our Savior is glad to be born with this as part of his family background, you know, you tell stories about your family, and uh, probably they're often the good ones. You wouldn't tell this story at dinner time. I don't think when you're around Thanksgiving you, and, you know, the dad says, what are you thankful for? And you have this kind of story. I don't think you're going to say this kind of story, but you should. Because it's an example of God's grace. See how great God will, is willing to go. See how great. And realize that you have not sinned too much. You have not sinned so much that you are beyond the pale of Christ's grace. He came into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost John Calvin says about this, this very chapter, he says, at first blush, it appears the dignity of Christ is tarnished by these words. Isn't that what we think? Uh, parents don't want their kids to be kind of reading this part of the Bible. It seems like it. But Calvin says, actually, it rather rebounds. It rebounds to his glory in the end instead of detracting to it. This rebounds to God's glory. Christ shows us where God's glory really is. It's not about being first. It's not about being best. It's not about being on top. It's not about being in front. It's about living in the dirt, in the lowly, in the sleazy position. God in the incarnation. Here is Christ taking on flesh and blood in this kind of stuff. He lives and eats with sinners and tax collectors, prostitutes. It's the critique the Pharisees always attack him with. They always use this angle. They say, how can you be God and glorious if you hang out with Tamar, with Judah? But friends, you never need to wonder, can Jesus stand you? Can Jesus stand being around you? He can stand being around you. He can come as low as you are today or tomorrow. Judas sins so many times and Christ forgives him. He does not say to you, I've forgiven you 10 times. This is your last chance. The world marvels at people who give second chances. You know, isn't that how all the TV shows work? Oh, you're really nice. You gave me a second chance. Thanks, teacher. I'm going to be a straight-A student. I've seen about 10 of those movies. You know, the, the bad kid in the in this high school, he becomes a, a great student by the end of it because the teacher gave him a second chance. We think that's amazing. God is not a God of second chances. He's a God of hundreds of chances. He is patient far more than we merit. He comes into your bloodline. He says, I am bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh and yet without sin. And he invites us, therefore, to worship his name, to honor his grace. He is the God of the thousandth chance. And thankfully, he is. Otherwise, you and I would have no hope of life. Second, this is a call to humble ourselves. What does Tamar do? Tamar humbles herself. Judah humbles himself. We get the name Jew from Judah. You know how proud Jews are of their heritage? We mentioned Sunday school today. That they're the chosen ones. They see that their culture is the best. 
that religion is the highest. We are reminded here that no matter your bloodline, you need humility. You need humility. Judah came from the best bloodline possible, and he needed the grace of God. You should be glad if you have Christians in your family, but not proud. You should be glad if you have Christians. You are simply to say, God has given more grace to my family, and I need it. I need the grace. That's why, friends, the surprise should not be when you find your weird uncle or your black sheep of an aunt. The surprise should be when you find in your family fold a trophy of grace. The surprise should be not sin, but grace. Because the reality, we are skeevy, dirty old men. We are filthy women like our father Adam and our mother Eve. We need the grace of God. If you humble yourself to realize. Third, this chapter calls us to hope in Christ. We're called to love is grace. We're called to humble ourselves. We're called to hope in Christ. You see hope for three kinds of people. Hope for Judah. Judah is selfish. Judah neglects God's blessings. Perhaps you've assumed that. Perhaps you've been coming in and out of church and you assume that you can live how you feel. You can just do what you want. You can have any kind of best friend. You can be around whatever kind of people. This is a word of grace to people who presume and assume. God can change you as he did Judah. It starts with confession. She is righteous. I am not. Return to Christ. That's you. Don't exploit him. He has plenty of hope for you. Or maybe you're like Tamar. Maybe you come from outside the church and you've been hurt by Christians. God is in the business of saving damaged people, manipulated people. He can intervene to restore to you the years the locusts eat. No evil done to you ruins you beyond the reach of divine grace. No evil done by you, no evil done to you. And then, of course, this calls us to look not simply to the birth of Perez and Zara, but what that birth points to, which is Christmas. This is a Christmas text. I should have waited a couple weeks, I suppose. It's a Christmas text. It's a story that shows us how low God comes, how low God comes, and how much he gives. He gives a double blessing. Do you know that God gives you as a Christian a double blessing? He gives you a double portion. He gives you more than you can ever ask or imagine. So are you, are you assuming that of him? Are you coming to him and saying, Lord, give me more of your grace. Lord, pour out more of what you have for me. Make me more like Christ. Give me not just the strength to confess and repent. Give me not just the courage and determination, but give me your son. And he will do it. He will do it. Ask him and he will do it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we come and we bow before you. We marvel at your grace shown in Tamar's life, in Judah's life. We ask that you would help us not just to look to them as, as examples, but to revel in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. That he has come so low that he has taken on the form of a slave, that he was willing to die a criminal's death. The death that Tamar didn't die, he was willing to die in our place. He was willing to be identified with us to take our staff in hand, to take our identity, that we might have his precious and perfect righteousness. We pray this in his glorious and beloved name. Amen.